I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I'm excited to have somebody that I met during the depths of the pandemic over LinkedIn or some networking event that we did. And we've since stayed in touch and really enjoyed his content and the work he's doing. I'm happy to have Milton Lewin with us today. Milton, how are you? Doing great. Beginning of the three-day weekend, what could be better? I know, it is very nice. We're recording this on Friday before the holiday weekend, and it feels good to... <laughs> enter into a holiday where there's a, a degree of normalcy associated with it. So let's get into it. Maybe, you know, I really want to talk about the allocator network and, and some of the work you're doing there. But before we do so, if you could give us a background on yourself and, and how you came about to start this really interesting networking platform that you put together. Sure. Uh, thanks. I have, uh, I think what probably is the, uh, the at least financial textbook definition of an eclectic background, primarily on the um, on the sales side is broadly defined. I started a career at Citibank selling loans off of their books and ended up at Oppenheimer, where I was one of the first people in the high yield department, the, the, the junk bond area, which was much more fun to call it that uh, back in the real Glory days of the uh, busted buyouts in the late 80s, early 90s, ended up merging with the Emerging Markets Department, which uh, a lot of which were also in the distressed category, which was great. Gave me real uh, insight into analyzing companies pretty well from a sustainable and uh, growth perspective. Left there, did some uh, some sort of personal things, wrote a screenplay, traveled around the world for a year, came back, and that was when a lot of the um, dot-com companies were blowing up. 
Uh, I had at least the first time uh, I had some friends in that space who brought me in to try to figure out who to save and who to maybe put some more money into and where to cut their losses and so on. Uh, that then led to my running a small private equity fund which was a fascinating experience. I've actually written up several things from my uh, experience working with those different teams, management company, uh, managements, companies, and so on. Uh, I always tell people, if you really ever want to have your faith in humanity restored, being in a position where you see business plans and business ideas come to you all day is just remarkable. I mean, they, there's uh, there's never a shortage of ingenuity and innovation and creativity, and it's just truly impressive to see all the different ways that people look to start businesses. And, you know, they're not all uh, cryptocurrency mining ones either. Uh, so that was great. Left there and, and did a few other things. Uh, ended up working for a couple different hedge funds, which gave me some real insights uh, on the inside. And then when I left my last fund, I was trying to figure out what to do. And speaking to a lot of different people, what became very clear, and I've always said this about other areas, is, uh, as I've always said, curation uh, is really the operative word in this overwhelming information era that we uh, not only live in now, but clearly will be living in. Whether it's movies or music or restaurants or hedge funds, it's how do you, there's way too many, uh, way more than anybody actually needs. So how do you really decide what it is you want to invest in and or what movie you want to see, what restaurant you want to go to, or, or where you want to go on vacation. All of that, it's really sort of, I look at it as concentric circles. If your close friend calls you up and says you, or, or sends you a text and says, you have to see this movie, it's the best one I've ever seen, you're going to prioritize that, or if there are certain reviewers you like. And likewise with funds. When people look at allocating to hedge funds, there's an infinite uh, array out there, which I'll touch on later, and how that affects investors' perspectives and so on. So how do you decide? And you clearly go for the ones that people who you trust will recommend, uh, and you're happy recommending the ones that you know to people who trust you. And what I realize is the hedge fund, uh, or really alternative, whereas private equity fund, private debt, venture capital, and so on, allocation world is an extremely opaque one. And that was an area where curation is desperately needed because if you are uh, diligencing, uh, in other words, looking at a fund to invest in, uh, or you would like to find other investors who are in a fund you're in for certain reasons, everybody's real gold standard, finding somebody who's redeemed from a fund that you're looking at, or people who are looking at the same funds you are at the same time, or better funds perhaps, it's literally impossible to do that because the only person who knows who's in a fund or who's looking at a fund is the fund. And for some very good reasons, they're never going to tell you. So I created the Allocator Network, which is literally a network of global allocators, probably up to about 250 members, I think, in, I think, 24 different countries who can now, using the network, they can identify which funds uh, they would like to either share or receive information on. Uh, it's completely anonymous on the site. And then when you say, oh, I'd like to connect on this fund, I see there's two other members who also would like to share information on it. You check the box, you click the big green button, and emails are exchanged that say, uh, member A from this particular firm would like to connect with you to discuss this fund. Here's his bio, here's his contact info. And they would then receive your information saying that you would like to connect with them to discuss this fund. Here's your contact info. Here's your bio. You guys take it from there. People email, set up calls and have the conversation. There are also that then facilitated other things on the site, such as ratings of funds. Members can favor a fund. We have a member forum where people can uh, enter questions or you know, ask questions about service providers or uh, regulatory compliance or things like that. Um, and a few other things. And it's just been uh, 
been great. I get to talk to uh, interesting people in you know thirty different countries uh, all over the world all the time. So what could be better? And the concept of curation, I think, is is an important one because there is a, just a deluge of information that we all have to sift through, right? And we're always trying to manage that information. But also, what I really like about what you're doing is there's the curation, but also the social networking, community building aspect of it, which from the investor standpoint, I think is, is just as important to have that peer-to-peer community where they can lean on each other for insights or introductions, referrals. And that's really where I think a lot of the magic happens. Yeah, it's um, been really, well, just sort of say, it's been really interesting. It's interesting to me was exactly like I found. In fact, I, I wrote something on my, my Medium uh, page about this when I was in the private equity space, which is one the first time we did it, and we ended up doing it subsequently, we got the CEOs of six of the, well, basically the six companies in our portfolio together for a one-day conference. And what I was blown away by after having done that was the fact that the if you had, if I had told you ahead of time what companies those six CEOs represented, but not which one was which, and you had sat in pretty much the entire day's worth of conversations, you still wouldn't know who was with which company because their problems and opportunities and so on was so common to each of them. And I find the same thing with uh, with hedge fund investing. When I've done online meetings uh, with people discussing anything from cryptocurrency to alternative credit, healthcare investing. You know, certainly a lot of uh, uh, crypto-related things, Chinese regulatory uh, questions. I've never had less than four countries uh, represented among maybe twelve to fifteen allocators on the call. And again, if I had told you one's a, a multi-billion-dollar family office, the other's an endowment in Texas, and so on, that you'd have no idea which is which, other than maybe their accents, because their their interests uh, are so common to all of them, the way they look at the world, the opportunities, and so on, and that's where the value is. Even though the connection is done through a fund, what a lot of people tell me is, oh, we didn't even talk about that fund. Half the people I connect with, you know, you just get into what else you're looking at, what do you do, what's interesting, who's been your best performer, and so on. And so along those lines, I was reading this morning, I think in the journal or the Financial Times, that hedge fund AUM is at an all-time high today. And interest, I think, in, in today's market, given everything happening, it seems like a lot of folks are, are back focused on active managers and, and alpha producers. So in your opinion, what you're hearing from the allocator side, you know, what is the biggest challenge that these investors face when they are looking to access the hedge fund space today? I would say the biggest uh, issue is is the correction in what you said, which is separating alpha from beta. It is very, very challenging, especially in a market where really everything has been going up. You know, all I would say all correlations have gone to one, but it's sort of the you know the Buffett line, if it if it really is his originally about not knowing who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. I always tell people it comes down to we're getting into a, a broader category here. But if I walked into a casino and put all my money on black, and black came up, and I doubled my money and walked out, was that a good bet? And am I really smart in my in my gambling? And I think anyone would say, well, the answer is no, because it's a risk adjustment that you have to make. But most people don't really do that until oftentimes until it's too late, but it is difficult to, you know, the goal is to construct the best portfolio, not simply find the best funds. Uh, and I think I'm sort of meandering off your question here, but in terms of hedge funds, 
it's, you know, hedge funds had gotten a bad name because people basically saw them uh, as just long, short, basically beta replicating vehicles and, and, and primarily underperforming at that. But the reality is there are, oh, you know, I'm not sure how many different varieties uh, of funds. I think on the Allocator Network uh, homepage alone, there's something like 65 different strategies uh, if you want to you know, drill down into specifically TMT or only healthcare, but also just within the credit space and within the cannabis and crypto and crypto trading and crypto mining and, and so on, you can get into incredible variety on that. So actually, let me ask you, because we're kind of going down a bunch of different different paths here. So maybe I'll have you center me a bit better, better and uh, address what specific questions you have. Yeah, no, I, I think that's helpful because what started out as... <laughs> I mean, in many ways, hedge funds is really just an alternative fee structure, but then it's really morphed into, I mean, to your point, there are a lot of flavors of ice cream now. It's not just your long, short type approach. There's any number of quantitative you know, approaches or, or honestly, a lot of the hedge fund groups that I track have become private equity investors in a lot of ways. And so it can be a confusing space and it's a big tent and I think it, it gets misapplied oftentimes. So given all these issues, I mean, the platform that you've created, I think comes um, in handy for a lot of folks who are, are trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. What are the typical questions or inquiries that you see or you've got good insight into what these peer-to-peer conversations look like. I mean, what are the narratives that you're seeing today? Well, fortunately, I, I don't I don't have insight in the actual conversations because that's, you know, I try to protect all, all of that. So people would like to be very uh, happy to know that, you know, those are all protected. But it's really, as I said, the search for alpha, trying to dis- distribute. It, it, while when you talk about the growth in hedge fund assets, clearly a lot of that is uh, or their performance is organic, right? If you're if you're simply matching the market, given the, uh, the the rise in markets over the past really one year, much less five to ten years, really figuring out who's and and generate and defining alpha by the way is very challenging because I, I remember at a previous fund uh, we were one of the funds I was at we were thinking of setting up a fee structure where we would get higher fees if we really generated pure alpha and very very low fees if we didn't. But defining that to really try to separate out volatility, the risk people are taking and so on is very challenging. And it is only rewarded when it comes into play. Uh, you know, you, it's a little too late to buy your insurance after the hurricane hits. So it's finding, figuring out what people are looking for when they do these connections, even the most sophisticated investors, is trying to understand what's really going to add value to my portfolio. At this stage, it's, you know, data is ubiquitous, as I said earlier, with the proliferation of information. So simply identifying who performed the best or who had the certain returns is clearly something that, that anybody can do easily off the various data providing sources. But to figure out who generated that, because again, as I always say, you can't invest yesterday, you can't invest last year, you can only invest tomorrow. And so you have to, yes, past performance is definitely the best predictor of future results, but you have to understand why. What did they do to get those returns? Is the market going forward? Uh, what I think what I think it's going to be, are they going to be, uh, how are they going to perform? And the best way to get all sorts of color like that, how do they manage risks? How do they deal with you know, the tough markets, whether it's 2018, if they were around in 2008 and so on, or depending which market they're in, they've had various uh, down cycles. 
uh, and you want to talk to people who've been there for the ride or who had also looked at it or who had looked at other companies similar to uh, or other funds similar to what you're the one you're looking at or maybe connected on and maybe they like them better for certain reasons. Uh, so it comes down to a point where defining the qualitative difference between funds is what's really the challenge. And the more information you can get on that, uh, especially from people who have uh, deep experience with that particular manager and others like it, uh, that's just information you can't get anywhere else. Right. And it solves this issue of, you know, the GP or the sponsor of the hedge fund. Obviously, when you ask for a referral or a reference, they're going to provide you with, you know, in their opinion, ostensibly a positive one. Right. And and so it can be very hard, I think, from the marketing side when you're selecting these groups to really dive through all of the, you know, again, marketing collateral that they provide. And you can get to more of the, I mean, these peer-to-peer conversations and the internal uh, network that you've created can really get to the more kind of qualitative characteristics of that management team, you know, uh, and I think can help with investor expectations more than what you might hear from the, the GP or the sponsor themselves. Absolutely. As the saying goes, you invest in the firm, not in the fund. I used to uh, say to my old fund that if it was really just about the performance numbers, let's just send out our wiring instructions with our monthly numbers and sit around and wait for the, uh, for the assets to roll in. But that, that proved to not be a particularly effective business model. And so you realize that, as I said, if it was simply good performance, bad performance you know, is not going to get you anywhere, period. But even good performance will simply get you to the table and you'll get you to a conversation. But then, and, and this, I'll, I'll segue into this area because I think this is kind of where we're going and you know, cut me off if I go too long. But what it really comes down to, and a big part of what I, I guess I would say here is that when most, anybody I'm talking to for the network pretty much invests in multiple funds. As I would say, nobody in this network diligences or invests in one fund. And so whenever someone looks at a, any of these uh, investors, look at a fund, and this probably goes for individuals looking at anything in their portfolio. But when you're paid to construct a portfolio, every time you look at a fund, the question has to become, uh, is now, is this genuinely additive to my portfolio? And simply putting together the best performing funds or saying, well, I, I'm a little underrepresented in emerging markets, so let me just go find the best performer, I'll put it in. Really, how could that be bad? You know, there's a reason why you don't just get you know, the highest scoring players in the league and put them on one team and always win. What matters is the construction of the portfolio, how your funds are going to do relative to each other under what circumstances. If you have an emerging markets fund and you've got certain equity, US only equity funds, well, they may be performing so similarly in the exact same circumstances, you know, that, that the correlation between them is so high that you're getting de minimis value from adding the emerging market. One, in fact, you may be subtracting overall expected returns because the volatility is much higher. Uh, the return isn't higher and the times it's going to perform well. The rest of your portfolio is going to do well anyway and vice versa. So it's crucial to look at how that is going to affect it in terms. And that's why investors will always ask funds, when should I expect you to do well? What, when are you likely to underperform? And, you know, those aren't trick questions and, and no fund is going to say, you know, you're, you're going to get laughed out of the room if you say, well, you know, we're never going to be down and we always expect to do well. We're an all weather fund because that's not necessarily what's even needed uh, and why investors are looking at adding something to the fund. Does it reduce my overall volatility without costing me any sort of meaningful reduction in expected returns? Those are the kind of things that people look for in constructing a portfolio. 
So the kind of conversations that you have with someone else becomes part of, of your overall portfolio construction methodology, not simply, is this a good fund or a bad fund? And, and along those lines, given the, you touched on this a little bit, but I want you to unpack it further. Given the diversity of the allocators on the platform and the disparity, I would assume, of some of their risk appetite and return profiles in terms of what they're trying to solve for between a large pension fund or you know a mid-sized family office or ultra high net worth individual etc have you seen a commonality there or are they just too diverse with different mandates that sometimes they have trouble empathizing with each other from an investment standpoint? You know, I get that's a great question because I get that a lot uh, sort of instinctively. There are certain what I would call gating criteria. If you're a pension fund and can only cut checks of 500 million or above, you're clearly not going to find a lot of overlap with a hundred million family office. They probably wouldn't really be coming into contact with the network all that much anyway, because you're connecting through certain funds and strategy areas. Even in the more extreme cases, like the one I just mentioned, uh, which is an extreme case, I've found that that there is value to be gotten from the conversation. People say, look, you know, we didn't overlap as much as I thought, but it was a really interesting conversation uh, in the way that, you know, if no other reason, then you're, you know, kind of each person's getting a different perspective on something that they both do all day long for a living. You know, it's just a little different perspective on on markets and funds and so on. But as long as there aren't structural barriers between the two different between different investors, uh, the commonalities are much more than people would realize. And what people are looking for, you know, when when I first started the network, one of the suggestions people had made is that I should have different silos so that the endowments can talk to each other and the private banks can talk to each other and so on. And the funny thing was that I said, that is one thing I know not to do because that's one thing everyone has specifically told me they don't want done. No No endowment says, I really need a fit place so I can talk to other endowments because they all know who other endowments are and they have their own network for things that involve regulatory issues or certain things that are common to, to endowments. What they really care about, everybody says this, is I want to talk to other smart investors. You know, I want to talk to other investors who look at the world the way I do, who are looking for the same type of funds that I am. You might be a completely, as I said, however disparate examples you want to use, whether it's an endowment and a a family office or this, that. And like I said earlier, the needs that they have at different times. They say, look, we're really happy with with the equity side of our portfolio. We need to, we're really focused on private credit. And so you want to talk to people who are focused on private credit. Maybe you're looking to do it in a much more uh, higher vol, higher return way, or maybe you have a, a X percent of your portfolio that you need a more conservative presence in. And so you're going to look to connect with others who look at, at that. And if somebody has a portfolio full of very conservative investments, because that's their mandate to, to generate like that, great. You're happy to tap into that and share your notes on what you know, and it could be added to each. Yeah, people ask me, you know, what value we provide as a firm beyond just the investment opportunities and my responses, my network and, and et cetera. But along those lines, I think the, the smartest questions I get from the savviest investors that are within my network, they come to me and they ask, okay, who are the sponsors and management teams within credit, venture, crypto, whatever, that you, Brian, think are really smart and are doing cool things. Where are you finding your best ideas and where are you investing personally? 
I mean, I think that's just such a great question that nobody asks or not enough people ask, I guess, because, uh, you know, it's you've if you look at it as just the 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 product of the investment that your manager is offering, the relationship could be a lot bigger and more meaningful and you could get more value out of it beyond just the investment itself. Yeah, it's sort of like the uh, the two barbers in town, right? And you go to the one who has the best haircut, you know, not the one who uh, necessarily keeps his uh, shop the best. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so there's no sense of competition here. It's it's not viewed as a zero sum game for these investors. They're they're willing to open up the kimono and, and share these things with each other. You know, I guess I would say it's it's more like opening up the uh, you know the trench coat with all the different pockets, you know, and but you keep a few of those pockets hidden. Uh, people. In the beginning, uh, that is another area that people initially had, or, or even still, when I talk to people, there may be a very, very slight hesitation on that concept generally. And then as soon as I explain what it is, they say, yeah, I'm fine with that. Because there are some funds that people say, well, I'm, I'm not going to disclose this because it's capacity constrained and I don't want other people getting into that. And, and that's fine. I never expected that, uh, that this was going to be something for people to share their entire portfolio. Uh, but most of the funds that people invest in, uh, number one, are large enough to accommodate the other investors they talk to. And number two, this isn't uh, publicizing this to the entire world. If you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation, and of course, you can have that one-on-one -on -one conversation, that person can talk to another person who talks to another person. But for the most part, it's controlled enough that nobody is unleashing any floodgates here. Um, and it's really worth the trade-off. Uh, and then secondly, and again, this is something that people will initially push back on and then very quickly realize is not an issue, that the topic of competition is almost non-existent. Uh, even, I mean, I was speaking to a large RIA in California, and he said, well, I want to make sure that I'm not connecting or being connected with my competition. And I said, well, who is your competition? And when he started to think about it, he realized, yeah, there's maybe one or two others in California that they compete uh, for clients, but connecting with even an RIA uh, in Texas or Illinois is not competition for him remotely, even though they could be going after the same people. The world's large enough. And he almost immediately realized, I said, look, we can set it up so that you don't get connected to that. And he said, no, 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 that's, you're right. And if I did, I could just say, look, I don't want to have this competition. But they realized that pretty much it's a, it's, it's, it's the exact opposite of a zero sum game um, that, you know, you can do well and I can do well, and it is in you're doing well in no way uh, detracts from my ability to perform uh, well. Because again, perform is a ambiguous and relative term because your idea of perform could simply mean beating uh, treasuries and not losing money. Uh, and mine might be generating the highest overall net return. Uh, my risk profile can be much higher. Your risk profile could be different or so on. And a lot of the different things we're talking about will help each of us in constructing uh, what is the appropriate portfolio for each of us. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense and echoes what I've heard within my space. What I, I have some, you know, cap intro type networking groups that I'm a member of. And yeah, I think that abundance mindset, you know, given just <laughs> how big the world is today um, is, is certainly the right one if you're in a, in a growth mindset or mode of your company. And let's talk about the state of play of hedge funds here. You alluded to this earlier that just given what the market's done um, the last year, yes, but, but really in the last you know 10 years in this bull cycle we've been in, 
it, it's been a rising tide and, and that ref, is reflected in the AUM in part. But the flip side of that is very hard to distinguish yourself given your, you know, whatever benchmark you're aligned to as a fund manager. What do you think the state of play is within the hedge fund community here? And obviously, I'm really interested in, from the allocator standpoint, are people looking to allocate more? Are they taking risk off the table? Do they think there's a window of opportunity here for these management teams to create alpha? What is the, what is the state of play? Yeah, it's, um, it's funny. It's like, as I've been saying, people are at this great party and everyone's afraid to overstay because they don't know what's going to happen You know, as things get really wild. But on the other hand, everyone's afraid to leave too early because uh, the really good stuff maybe hasn't happened yet. And I hear all the time, uh, you know, I've been working sort of on the side with a uh, fund focused on the ASEAN space in Southeast Asia, uh, which is a much larger space than a lot of people realize. And in some of the conversations I've had, uh, people have said, oh, you know, these are very sophisticated investors. Yeah, we've got to branch out. We've got to diversify uh, both in terms of asset class and especially geography because I've just been too heavily concentrated in the U.S., but hey, that's the right place to be. So I know it's wrong. I know I need to start diversifying, but so far so good. Uh, and it's very hard the temptation because as soon as you know it's been working for you, and not that everybody's a momentum fund, uh, but you know every day that you don't take capital out of the U.S. market, you look smart. And in fact, even you know had you done nothing, uh, basically uh, going back to last February or March uh, of 2020. Uh, doing nothing is a brilliant strategy. Uh, you know, of course, you should have added during the lows, but uh, it's it's a real challenge right now for people to decide when 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 and whether to take chips off the table, um, how to do it. Uh, you know, it, there's still certainly a lot of uh, emphasis and a lot of expectations, growth expectations on developed markets, uh, on Europe, on the U.S., on uh, areas of, of Asia, and when when the right time is to really start reducing risk uh, is just something that a lot of people, uh, it's a function of people's personal tolerance. It's a function of their uh, institutional mandate. Um, but definitely people are looking to diversify a bit better. Uh, but that's also a, a more global theme since it's so easy, basically zero cost uh, to get true beta. You can buy you know, all sorts of uh, indices and ETFs. And so the challenge for a lot of these funds, as I said, becomes not just Hey, look how good our performance was! But here's why you you should trust us going forward, and here's why we're differentiated from the various uh, indices or whatever you're going to compare us to. And it's a, I you know, I really uh, can can sympathize with a lot of funds because it's a big challenge to say, yeah, yeah, I know we underperformed the index for the past, you know, or in X of the past Y years, but no, no, going forward it's going to be different. And you know, that's a real challenge. And I think people avoiding managers who really can't justify, you know, say their fees, but also justify being active, have a real challenge. Yeah. I, I think that is the conversation around the table right now. And I speak with a lot of investors. My investor network are accredited, but non-institutional folks, but within the family office RIA space, huge appetite for alternatives. But at the end of the day, and, and I'm a real estate person, it's been hard to, you know, beat just to continue to buy US stocks. It's been challenging to go against that trend. And, and the question is, when do you leave the party? Um, well, and it's also the old line about, you know, no one ever got fired for allocating, you know, for investing or, or buying IBM. You know, 
it's very hard, as, as we know from, from all sorts of psychostatistical and, and, and psychometric work, is people are much more loss-averse than they are gain-oriented. So they'll pay more to protect the loss than they will to, uh, to get the equivalent gain, even if the odds are better or the likelihood is better on the gain. So it, it becomes a situation where, you know, if you're invested in the U.S. market and it's been doing well and then it goes down, well, at least, you know, almost everybody else is going to be going down your relative performance isn't going to suffer. And it's very hard for you to get faulted by your investment committee, by your clients, by whomever, for doing what's been working the whole time. And when they come back and say, hey, I'm paying you to, to know when it's time to leave the party, you know, if you're a little late, that's okay. If you're too early, th that will get you fired. People, you know, clients will look at it and say, you should have known not to do that, depending how conservative you get. And especially if you start to do anything more esoteric. Uh, and esoteric is, is a very broad definition, depending on, on the sophistication of the investor. You know, if it doesn't work, then is that, it's just all loss and no gain for you. So I, I want to pivot here a little bit and step away from talking about the hedge fund space directly and get into some of the commentary you provide, which is on just a higher level based on your experience that you've had in the investing world. And you made a comment to this point earlier in the conversation that I want to revisit about you're investing with the management team and not the fund. In, in your experience, what characteristics or themes do you see in really good management teams that can differentiate themselves th from the rest of the pack? Boy, we're starting another hour because uh, it, it, <laughs> I think it would be at least that. You know, I don't want to use the old line about it's hard to define, but I know it when I see it. But a lot of the conversation, it really, it comes out, I have to say, it, to some extent, it comes out in the data. It just has to be backed up by the qualitative because in order to really understand, you know, did this person or did this manager have, were they lucky in this time? Were they just getting ideas from their friends or so on? So you can do the best you can at digging down. And when you meet with, again, I'm speaking institutionally when I know investors do diligence funds, meet with the management team, meet with, the, uh, with, with anyone at the firm. One of the things I've always said, especially having been on the inside of a fund and been the marketing or COO at different funds, I've said, I'm shocked how many times uh, which is almost every time the investors don't ask to speak to a variety of different people at the firm. And, you know, you can learn a lot if you ask, you talk to the receptionist for 10 minutes and get an idea of what kind of place it is. If people are all walking around in fear, if people love coming in, you know, and so on. But by speaking to the analysts, by, you know, not having the marketing person in the room, by speaking to different people, by asking the PM certain questions, you can get a feel for how they work together, how genuinely what they say they do has matched up with their historical performance. If they want to talk about how good they are at risk aversion and trading and so on, and they have you know, much higher volatility than they should, then there, there's clearly a disconnect there that, that needs to be reconciled. So there's a lot of just basic uh, questions that people can have answered by talking to different people at the fund and understanding literally what they do uh, what they do under certain circumstances and so on. But again, all of that is going to come out in analyzing the numbers and looking at the, the cross-correlations uh, within the portfolio, your portfolio, but also looking at this fund compared to who they think or you think their competition is. Looking at, you can go back and look at historical attribution and exposure is crucial uh, to understand where the returns really came from, how well distributed they were. No one's going to have, you know, it's okay if a few of their, their the returns came from a few correct so to speak, positions, as long as it's based on a consistent methodology of analyzing situations and trading and positioning and so on. 
And then you can expect that to, to occur going forward. But that's really, you know, you just want to do as thorough a job as you can. And as I said, the real key is making sure that what you think you see on the qualitative side matches up with the way the fund has generated returns in the past, which you can, you know, get very granular in terms of seeing exactly what uh, their exposures and attributions were at, at any point in their history. It's a great point. And, and when I go on podcasts, when people talk to me about diligence, it's incredible to me how few LPs ask, not about the investments themselves, because I think sophisticated LPs do a really good job diligencing the investment product, but they don't really, in my experience, ask that many questions about what the investor experience will be and what the expectations can be. And to your point, asking other people on the team what they do, what role they play. And I, and I love your anecdotal statement about the, the secretary or, or folks, the administrative side, because when I'm looking at a property and we're talking to a tenant, the receptionist and the people who work in the front of the house know the most about what's going on in that place. And if you ask them, hey, you know, have you been busy lately? How's business going? They'll be wide open with you because they, you know, they answer the calls. They hear what people are saying over coffee and they know everybody, right? And they're the ones who have that kind of institutional knowledge base. So I think it's a great point that you make. Thanks. So along those lines, in, in terms of, you know, identifying talented management teams, et cetera, you talk about, you know, and, and we touched on this earlier with this commonality of problems, solutions. Do you think that's a differentiator there between, you know, management teams and funds that can effectively scale without losing alpha? Well, I mean, that's, that's a major concern. You know, one of, one of the, I don't say the primary, because uh, certainly a lot of primary issues are obvious, but one of the issues that uh, the people, the allocators discuss among themselves all the time is, gee, I met with this guy. We asked them, we moved this fund. We asked them what their capacity was. They said X. They're now at, you know, one and a half X. Either has the world changed or their opportunity set changed that's legitimate, or are they just bringing in whatever assets they can? And we expect there's no way they can continue to generate those kind of returns going forward. And that's something people really have to stay on top of because it's uh, certainly understandable that managers like more assets more than less. There are some managers who can do what they do and scale it uh, to large ones. There are some where the capacity of what they do is, is well below where they are. But understanding that is, again, a, a part of the art and figuring out if they can, the manager can genuinely continue what, they, uh, what they've been doing. I mean, that's no, it's no different from, you know, the market's changing. And if, if they were doing certain things when interest rates were falling, certain things that were rising, certain things when they were, you know, in certain markets, has the market changed enough that whatever they were doing before isn't necessarily going to work the same? Right. You're, well, you're, you're always wary of, of a group that becomes an asset management firm as opposed to an investment firm, right? That's right. And sometimes they, sometimes in all fairness, and oftentimes fairness is not due, but uh, they may evolve or graduate to managing more money, generating lower returns, and be appropriate for different investors at that point. A, a manager who can do well with 50 million uh, may not do well with 500 million or as well, but they may do well enough at 500 million compared to other $500 million managers or billion dollar managers, assuming it's a, a strategy that, that can certainly accommodate that. One other thing I want to mention, I'll circle back to the, the issue because it was just it's so close to Proxima in my head that I thought it was very interesting. I was actually recently visiting a friend of mine who, and he was asking me, he said, hey, while you're here, take a look at this. And he was showing me this, this, the, the portion of his 401k that, that a large bank that he's worked at for a lot of years uh, that he's in. And 
they offered, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 different equity strategies, three emerging markets, and you know, so about nine or 10 were US-based. And they sounded like they were very different, if it's long-term growth or long-term value or so on. But when we did the work on it and looked at the correlations and the volatility and so on, the, the differentiation was, was minimal. And I said, you know, it's really unfortunate that they're not offering other than, you know, simply going into, into different uh, bond and credit portfolios. The variety of equity was apparent, but not genuine. And being in three or four of those different funds was adding almost or creating almost no genuine diversification for him. Uh, it was basically the same returns uh, for the last 10 years in almost any circumstance. In some cases, the risk was definitely higher. And I told him we should be reducing those positions because he's not getting any benefit from higher returns. And I think that just goes for a lot of people. They build portfolios, even very sophisticated investors build portfolios on a one-off basis because each one sounds good, each fund sounds good, each whatever. But on its own, it adds up to a just complete mishmash of a portfolio, which is horribly under-optimized for various markets, risk parameters, and, and, and cross-portfolio correlations. So while we finish up here, and this has been great, so thank you. I want to talk a little bit about the marketing side of things. That's something close to my heart. That's the, my primary function within my firm is telling our story, engaging with investors, bringing in new LPs, et cetera. And I really like this concept of benefits versus features that you've written about. Could you expound on how that plays into marketing best practices in your opinion? Yeah, I think uh, that's really my mantra. I've written about it, uh, which people can look up. And it really applies whether you're marketing a fund, whether you're marketing real estate, whether you're marketing yourself. Is It all comes down that people buy benefits, not features. But unfortunately, most people sell features and not benefits. And you know, the example I always use is when was the last time you saw a deodorant commercial that said, use our product and you won't stink, right? Never. You see people using this product and they're more successful. They get a promotion at work. People like them better. Right? You're just buying the benefits. So I was working with a fund and I said, what when I, they were trying to get uh, improve their marketing. And I said, okay, why should someone invest in your fund? And one of the first, the guy gave me four answers. And I said, you know, three of those are aspects that, that lend value, but that's not a reason. So we said one was, you know, we're, we're experts in our subject area, which actually happened to be real estate. And I said, okay, that in and of itself is not necessarily a reason why someone should invest. You would hope that, that it's necessary, the, it's definitely necessary. But I said, just because you're expert in your space, you might be a terrible investor. You know, it's, it's if you can utilize your expertise to identify specific investments that are superior that other people would not know, and expertise is, again, an amorphous area, then you're talking something that I can evaluate, I can understand, and I can see how it benefits for me. So everything has to be presented in terms of, number one, what is the benefit to me of buying your product or investing in your fund, which is why I went earlier to the, the comment of when should I expect it to do well, in what circumstances, you know, and so on. And then uh, closely related to that, again, depending on what, what industry and what product is, what's your differentiation? And it, it has to be somewhat really genuine because there's just, you know, the, the bane of everybody, uh, of whether you're marketing a fund or a product or so on is good enough, right? Whatever I have is good enough. So if you're going to get me to buy your product, invest in your company, use your service, it's got to be a lot better than whatever, better enough than whatever I'm doing. As I said to someone yesterday, and they said, well, I write that down. As I said, when I work and do sort of consulting and talk to companies, and I always say, what's, who's your competition? And for the most part, people will 
get it wrong in that the real answer, the big picture is the status quo, right? Nobody has to invest in any new fund. There's always other fund they can invest in. And if any fund shut their door tomorrow, other than that people that fund, no one would be, be any worse off. So it comes down to what is going to be different enough to make me want to go to your restaurant, consume your product, invest in your fund. And it has to be, how is that going to be additive to me versus whatever else I could be doing or doing nothing? And I actually did a presentation about this because I think people are terrible at raising capital within the accredited investor space, especially because you hear the pitch oftentimes of, I went to this great school and then I worked at this great firm and then I left because they didn't realize how smart I was. So I started this shop and I've got this great deal and you really need to do it. Like (laughs) you just spoke in the first person the entire time and you never talked about solving your, the problems of your investors. And it's entirely ego driven. There's no empathy at all. You need to reverse engineer your pitch and offer a solution set to your audience to compel them to do something. Because to your point, I think fundamentally people don't understand there needs to be a value proposition to have people give up their time and resources to you. It's not just going to happen. And I I think oftentimes people are just go about it the entirely wrong way. So I echo everything that that you just detailed. Yeah, As I said, the differentiation becomes too easy for them to say, like the guy said to me, well, we're subject matter experts. And I said, well, you know, I hope so. But if I, you know, I can find a lot of experts, it doesn't necessarily mean I would trust them with my money. And so people seem to think, I mean, when no knock on any good schools, and I, I certainly recommend good schools, but both my kids are in college now. And when they were looking at schools, I was encouraging them, you know, get to the best school you can. But I said, look, I deal with, you know, hundreds of people uh, all the time, all over the place. And I tell you, I don't think I could tell you what school anybody I talked to went to. You know, I certainly, nobody says, well, I have to need to see, you know, what school he went to because his performance looks good, but, you know, I really need to understand all these other factors. Well, you know, people can do something well, you know, whether they went to a good school or not, or whether they had a certain pedigree or not, you want to know where they learned it and who they learned from. And again, if it's consistent, but those things are all necessary, but not sufficient. Completely agree. Well, Milton, this has been terrific. I think we could go for another hour but I would be mindful of your calendar, especially given the holiday. So maybe let people know the best way to get in touch with you and if they're interested to learn more about the Allocator Network. Sure. Uh, It's literally www.theallocatornetwork.com. Milton Lewin is available on LinkedIn that you can see there, and that will get you to the network. And anything beyond that, I love talking to people, love sharing sharing ideas, try, you know, part of the, uh, the, my, enjoyment of having this network is the ability to help people. Uh, I really do. I do a lot of introductions that, you know, are sort of off the network that someone says something and I say, ah, you know, I, I know exactly the guy you should talk to. Through another network, I had uh, someone asked a question yesterday of looking for a VC deal lawyer in Singapore. And I said, I can help with that. And I reached out to three people I knew in Singapore and I got recommendations for two VC attorneys. Uh, so I was able to pass that along. So, you know, it's just uh, great to be able to uh, take advantage of the flat world we live in. Absolutely. And I can personally attest to the fact that Milton has an incredibly deep Rolodex. He's very helpful and thoughtful, creating excellent content. And the concept behind the Allocator Network is a much needed one in the space. So with that, Milton, thanks so much for joining us and look forward to staying in touch. Really appreciate it, Brian. Thank you. Likewise. 
Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.